Uh, Nick is a uh, he's an international evangelist, and this guy with no arms and no legs has a vision to see the gospel preached to seven billion people. That's his vision, and that's what he works for every day. What is it that enables someone like Nick to overcome that level of adversity? Does the guy have some challenges? Yeah, he does. I mean, I get upset whenever I drop chili on my shirt. Uh, whenever YouTube won't load. Whenever Sonic gets my order wrong again. But that's, that's a totally different level of adversity. And he's got an incredible vision. And what impressed me about him is he has such an incredible attitude. An incredible attitude. Um, has a beautiful wife. Two beautiful children. Uh, has not let the adversity in his circumstance keep him from experiencing the fullness of life. And it's absolutely amazing. So tonight's lesson is about adversity. And it starts with just a simple reminder. And for those of you that are taking notes, I'll try to tell you whenever I want you to write something down. But this is something that you want to write down. Who you become is not determined by your circumstances. Who you become is not determined by your circumstances. Who you become is determined by your outlook on life. Our greatest problems, guys, are they're not our circumstances. It's not our home life. It's not our financial situation. It's not the person at school or the person at work. It's not the, the job that we have or the job that we don't have anymore. It, our problems aren't our circumstances. You think that the biggest problem is what's going on in your life, and that's not the truth. Our biggest problem is our perspective. The biggest problem is how you look at what's going on in your life. And so whenever we look at life with the right perspective, then we start to see things the way that God sees them. And that's the key to overcoming adversity. You know anyone? You guys know anyone like Nick Bujicic that, that praises God and, and has, a, has a positive life in spite of adversity? You know anybody like that? You do? I mean, are you really like, are you thinking of someone right now? Maybe it's a friend, a relative, close family member, somebody that, that just has rough circumstances and adversity, yet they still have this, this positive outlook on life. What about in the Bible? Can you guys, can y'all name anybody in scripture that faced adversity yet? Go ahead. Okay. Job. Yeah. Somebody else. Joseph, okay. Somebody else? Job, Joseph. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, yeah. Moses. I mean, just about every biblical character that we could put out there, right? Jonah. Jesus. Job, Jonah, Joseph, Jesus. 
So tonight what I want to talk to you about is perspective. And what I want to do, I want to be very intentional with this. I want to give you two strategies for reframing the adversity in your life. I want to give you two strategies for reframing the adversity in your life. The first one is through scripture. And the second one is through worship. So I'm giving you the punchline now. Those are the two, the two strategies we're going to talk about. Reframing adversity through scripture and through worship. And I want to show you tonight how you can completely change your life by reframing the difficulties you encounter with these two strategies. So let's get started. Uh, strategy number one, we're going to talk about reframing through scripture. Reframing through scripture. Think of the Bible like uh, like a picture frame. And, and Casey was nice enough to bring this up here for me. I didn't have a big picture frame at home, but um, this is this is Casey's picture frame. And that good looking fella that you see here in this picture frame is, is Joseph. And um, that's Noah. Well, they looked a lot alike whenever they were younger. OK. Well, hello, Noah, that I thought was Joseph. Now, what I would love to do, and if I could have worked it out, I would have, but I didn't have a blue picture frame. Um, I'm, I'm not an interior decorator. I didn't get that gene. Uh, but I, I want to, to draw this analogy. Think of the Bible as a frame, like, like a picture frame. And what I do know about in interior decorating is that if you frame a picture, um, the two depending on what frame you use, is going to get a different type of reaction from people. The frame you use causes people to notice different things about the picture. If you put a brown picture or a brown frame on a picture, then people tend to notice the earthy tones, the browns and the tans and the beiges. If you use a blue frame, then it tends to draw out the blues in a picture. The frame determines the focus. That'd be a good thing to write down. The frame determines the focus. If you want to see yourself the way God sees you, then you have to look through the frame of Scripture because if you don't, you're going to have identity issues. You also need to look at other people through the frame of Scripture because when you do, then you'll stop seeing them as just this irritation in your life and this problem in your life and you'll start to see other people the way God sees them as irreplaceable and invaluable, and you'll start to love people the way God loves them, which is whenever they least expect it and when they least deserve it. So you need to look at yourself through a frame of Scripture. You need to look at other people through a frame of Scripture. But you know what else? You also need to look at life through a frame of Scripture, because when you do, the circumstances of your life will start to look remarkably different. Let me give you some examples. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you all right now, you're not going to like any of these. You're not going to like them. I don't like them. But take, Scripture has this really funny way of, of looking at things that we typically hate. Uh, things like persecution, trials, and even death. Let's take a look at how Scripture reframes persecution. Matthew 5, 11 through 12, and, and we're going to look at this in the New Living Translation. At least we're going to try to. It says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. 
This is Jesus talking. Jesus said that. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. This is the Bible's frame on persecution. Are you being persecuted right now? Maybe on the job? Yeah, I, I do a Bible study with um, Dale and, and Cody and, um, and their wives on, on Monday nights. And Dale and Cody constantly talk to me about the persecution that they face on their job because they try to live for God, because they try to be moral and try to be good people. And maybe you face that type of persecution on your job or maybe whenever you go back to school, there's this one person or this certain group of kids that you're going to hate to see because of the persecution that they give you. How are you? This is the challenge I want to give you. How are you responding to that persecution? Are you responding to that persecution in a biblical frame? The way that Scripture says to do it. Let's look at how Scripture reframes trials. James 1, 2 through 4 says this. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, whenever troubles or trials of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Is this bothering anybody else in the room? Uh-huh. It says, whenever trials and troubles come your way, consider it. Think about it, frame it, look at it as an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What's the biggest hardship you're facing right now? I'm not asking you to say that out loud. I just want you to think about it. What's the biggest hardship you're facing right now? When thinking about that hardship, how does this verse reframe that trial for you? To consider it an opportunity for great joy, to consider it an opportunity to have your endurance grow so that you can become more than what you are right now. One more, let's look at how Scripture reframes death. Not playing around tonight. This is heavy stuff. First Corinthians 15, 54 through 57 says this. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he has given us victory over sin and death. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture, folks. God's word to us. We talk about having a relationship with Jesus. You realize that the Bible says that Jesus was the word made flesh. So whenever we have a relationship with Jesus, we have a relationship with the word. It's God's word to us. This, folks, these scriptures about persecution and about trials and about death. This is God talking to us. This is Jesus having a conversation with us. And it's all it's a conversation about reframing. Maybe you're facing a situation right now tonight that needs some scriptural direction and, and some perspective. Well, God's talking to you. 
Through His Word, He's telling you there's a better way for you to look at your circumstances. Now, I don't know about you guys, but um, I don't like adversity. Any weirdos out there that enjoy it? <laughs> no. We don't want to. When it comes down to it, if you give Coop a choice, I'd rather have it easy than have it hard. I, I, I'd rather to not have to fight. I'd rather to not have to struggle. I'd rather easy street than adversity avenue. But if we put a biblical frame around the adversity in our life, we begin to see that there are some life lessons and there are some character traits that can only be learned and developed through adversity. Through struggle. Through trial. In fact, adversity expands our capacity to serve God. That would be a good one to write down. Adversity expands our capacity to serve God. We'll talk about that more in a little bit toward the end. Philippians 1 and 29 in the New Living Translation says it this way. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Did you catch that one? You are so blessed. You are so blessed. You have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ. How many of you guys know that sometimes trusting in Christ is awesome? And sometimes trusting in Christ is really hard. You've been given not only the privilege, the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also what's that next word? Yeah. Suffering. Now, let's be brutally honest. Uh, if you're like me, you sometimes come across certain scriptures that you wish hadn't made it into the Bible. Like, you know, we know that the spirit moved upon holy men of old to to write down scriptures. And you sometimes wish that those guys would have been like, mm, I don't know. I'm, we're going to just we're not going to write that one now. It's a good thing they were doing the writing. You if these scriptures that, you know, they're true. You know they're true, you, you know they're right, but you just wish they weren't in the Bible. Philippians 1 and 29 is one of those scriptures because it's tough to swallow. I mean, I like the belief part. I like the you've been given a, the privilege of believing in Christ part. I just don't really, I don't want anything to do with the suffering part, Hunter. And what's fascinating about that word given, if you look at it in the King James, I think it actually says granted. But what's what's fascinating about that word is that it comes from the Greek word charizomai. Charizomai. Probably not even saying it right, but that's okay. What it means is to grant a favor. To grant a favor. So it's almost like God is saying, listen, I owe you a favor. So let me let you suffer. We tend to see suffering as like this necessary evil in our lives, you know, like the no pain, no gain kind of thing. I know I'm, I've got to suffer at some point to get better. But Paul, in this writing right here in Philippians, he essentially calls suffering a divine favor. 
Here's the thing. There, there's nothing theoretical about Paul's approach to life. He's not writing in theory. He's not trafficking in untraveled truth here. He wrote those words whenever he was sitting in a jail cell. And we know that Paul knew what he was talking about whenever it came to adversity. Right? This guy wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, but he, was, he also suffered and endured more than just about anybody else in Scripture. Let's take a look at his resume. This is Paul's suffering resume. This is found in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 30 And it says, this is what Paul says. He says, I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. We get it, Paul, you, you were in danger. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You know, there weren't too many people in Scripture that were used more than the Apostle Paul. And you know what? Not too many people in Scripture face more adversity. I wonder... If those two things have anything to do with each other. I may not want to say it and, and you guys probably don't want to hear it, but God uses our adversity to expand our capacity to serve him. Adversity. Reframe it through scripture. Let's look at the second strategy for reframing adversity. And this is reframing through worship. Looking at our lives against the backdrop of Scripture will help us reframe our problems and our trials whenever they come our way. But, come our way. but another way to reframe our problems is through worship. You're going to be one of two types of people. You're going to be a complainer or a worshiper. There's no middle ground. You're going to be one or the other. You're either going to find something to complain about or you're going to find something to praise God about. But you're going to do one or the other. The story of Paul and Silas in Acts 16 is a great example of this. We'll go to Acts 16 verses 22 through 24. It says a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas. And the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with rods. Wooden rods as a matter of fact. They were severely beaten and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Y'all have seen those, right, before when we say stocks, it's those, those wooden things, got the holes in them, they close it up. Now, if I were Paul or Silas, I'm, I'm thinking at this point, I am spiritually, emotionally, physically, I'm done. You've you've beaten me with rods. You've put me in the innermost prison. 
and you've shut my feet up in the stocks. And all I was trying to do was what God told me to do. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was trying to do what God told me to do. And I'm thinking at this point, I'm, I'm just, I'm done on every level. I would be drained to the last drop, Dave. I would not have anything left to give at this point. And I would probably at this point start to question God about my circumstances. Hey, fella, um, I'm kind of thinking this is your fault that I am where I'm at. I'm just being real. Their backs were bleeding, throbbing, stinging from the beating they had taken. They, they were hurting. They were embarrassed. Come on, somebody. Your mom ever whip you in public? If she hasn't, I hope you get to experience that one day. Because more than the whipping, it's the public embarrassment that gets you to change your erratic behavior. These guys were just beaten, stripped naked and beaten in public. That's embarrassment on a totally different level. They were hurting, they were embarrassed, they were uncertain, and now they were in stocks in the like the supermax jail. And it, it just it doesn't get much worse in their circumstances, and that's why the next verse in Acts 16 is so amazing. The next verse is verse 25, and it says, Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. See, those other prisoners probably knew what Paul and Silas had been through. They probably knew why they were there, and they probably knew about what had happened prior to them arriving in that jail. And here they are, they're singing and praising God. What, this is what we call atypical behavior. This is, this is unusual. It's a very unusual response to that type of adversity. I wonder how many other prisoners that were in the prison that night thought about how they had responded to their adversity by hearing Paul and Silas sing praises to God. In the middle of theirs. Here's something I've noticed about myself. Whenever I get into a spiritual or emotional slump. Like whenever I, I start to get depressed or upset over something. It's usually because I've zoomed in on a problem. I'm fixating on something that's wrong. Like there's this, this problem. There's this. I, I'm focused on the wrong thing. And more often than not, the solution for me is to not stay focused on the problem and the thing that's wrong. The solution for me is to back away from the problem so I can get some perspective. That's why God put Julia in my life. Because she speaks sense to me. How, how do we do that? How do we get perspective? Here's the one word answer. One word answer to get perspective on your problems. Y'all ready? Worship. I didn't say it was going to be easy. But that's the answer. 
to get perspective on whatever your problem is, whatever you are focused on. Worship. Because worship is taking our eyes off of our external circumstances and focusing our eyes on God. We stop focusing on what's wrong with us or what's wrong with our circumstance or what's wrong with that person or what's so messed up about this situation. We stop focusing on what's wrong and we start focusing on what's right with God. Folks, God is faithful. He is kind. He is loving. He is eternal. He is merciful. He is patient. He is good. He is forgiving. The list goes on and on and on. There are so many things that are right about God. And I guarantee you there are more things that are right about God than are wrong with your situation. So focusing on those things that are right about God will draw you into worship because you can't start thinking about what's right about God and remain focused on your problem. It draws your heart and spirit into worship. Paul and Silas, they could have focused on their problems. They could have complained about their circumstances. Man, we're just trying to do what God told us to do. These stupid Jews, they don't understand. We've got a higher revelation than they do. And they're going to track us out there and... They didn't have to use a stick that big. They could have used a smaller stick and they didn't have to hit us that many times either. And then they put us in the innermost part of jail. I mean, we're not just in the jail, but we're like in the innermost. What's up with that, God? And I mean, they could have talked about all of these things that were wrong with their circumstance. But instead, they they made a choice. They made a choice to worship God in spite of their external circumstance. Worship, folks, it restores our spiritual equilibrium. It, it, it helps you regain your perspective. It enables you to find something right to praise God about, even whenever everything seems to be going wrong. Worship is zooming out and then refocusing on the big picture. It's, it's refocusing on the fact that 2,000 years ago, a man who was perfect died a horrible death on a cross so that he could pay the penalty for my sin because he loves me. It's refocusing on the fact that God loves me whenever I least expect it and whenever I least deserve it. He still loves me. It's refocusing on the fact that God is going to get me where he wants me to go. It's refocusing on the fact that I have an eternity with God to look forward to in a place where there's not going to be any more mourning and there's not going to be any more pain and there's not going to be any more sickness and grief. When we choose to worship God for those things that are right, then God does something. And this is, this is the weird turn of phrase in the Bible. It's called the joy of your salvation. Because you can be saved and still not be living in the joy of that salvation. But whenever you start to worship God for the things that are right about him, that joy of your salvation starts to just breathe back into your spirit. Is it easy? Nope. Few things, guys, are more difficult than praising God whenever everything seems to be going wrong and you're hurting. There is there's not too many things that are more difficult than that. But one of the purest forms of worship 
is praising God when you don't feel like it. You know why? Why is that form of worship better? Because it shows God that how you feel about him isn't based on your circumstance. Your feelings about him are based on his character and who he is. Come on, somebody, you want that significant other to love you for what you do for him? Or do you want them to love you for who you are? Well, we're created in his image. He wants us to to love him the same way for who he is. So worship reframes your circumstances. Worship reframes your circumstances. Paul gave us some great advice in Philippians 4 and 8. He said, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. A worshiper always finds a reason for praise because they're always looking for things that are praiseworthy. So if there's not a lot of praise and worship in your life, it's because you're looking for the wrong things. You start to look for things that are good and true and honorable and worthy of honor and admirable and worthy of prayer. You start to look for those things. And you know what? All of a sudden you start to find those things. Kind of funny how that works, huh? Yeah. The circumstances, guys, that you complain about, and this was like, whenever I was doing this part of the lesson, this was like God pointing his finger at me, like, Jason, this part of the lesson is for you. I'm going to communicate it to you, but this part is for me. The circumstances that you complain about become the chains that imprison you. Worship is the way out. So stop focusing on what is wrong about you and start focusing on what is right about God. There's an easy way to do that, and this is as practical as I can make it. For those of you taking notes, write this part down. For those of you not taking notes, like try real hard to remember this part. Here's a really easy way for you to stop focusing on what's wrong about you and your situation and start focusing on what's right about God. List 10 things that you're thankful for. List 10 things that you are thankful for. And then say them out loud to God in prayer. God, I thank you that I woke up this morning and both of my eyes work. I've got two working arms and two working hands and two working legs and feet. My heart works the way it's supposed to. My lungs work the way my stomach. I'm not hurting in my back. You start to talk to God. I thank you that I've got a wife and kids and I'm not alone in this world. I've got a house to live in and clothes to wear. And I didn't go hungry yesterday and I'm not going hungry today. I've got plenty of clean water to drink. I've got all of the clean water that I need. All I've got to do is walk over to a faucet and turn it on. There are people that in this world that can't even conceive of that right there. You start listing things that you're thankful for and say them out loud to God in prayer. Here's another thing you can do. 
Write down three things that you've complained about over the past week. Not necessarily to God, but just out loud to anybody. You know the things I'm talking about. Write down three things you've complained about over the past week and find something in one of those circumstances or each one of those circumstances to thank God for. Some jerk rear-ended me on Hooper Road. I'm so mad. That didn't really happen. I'm using this as an example. But you know what? I walked away from it. My car wasn't really messed up. What are you going to do? Are you going to praise God for the things that are going right or just going to focus on all the things that are going wrong? I dare you to do those things, to say those things out loud to God in prayer. You might feel a little bit foolish at first. But I dare you. I dare you to do it and watch what it does to your perspective. So let me wrap this up. I want to talk to you in, in, a, in this conclusion about remodeling, not remodeling a house, but the biological process of remodeling. In the world of strength training, which y'all can tell I do a lot of, there's something called, that like took my breath trying to suck my stomach in that hard, the principle of supercompensation. And uh, I, can I just stop real quick and tell you all a story? Whenever I was in, in LSU, um, like 500 years ago, they had just built the rec center, and it was this $10 million facility, and it had just the newest state-of-the-art everything, and um, started going over there at some point in the morning or in the afternoon before I would um, leave campus and, and get a workout in. And there was this guy that was in there all the time whenever I was in there, and he was, he was a beast. I mean, just a beast. Uh, he had like muscles on top of his muscles and you could tell he spent a lot of time and I weighed like 165 pounds dripping wet at the time and hadn't even found these things called shoulders yet. And so I was like asking the guy like, hey, uh, can you tell me about how to work out? And as meaty as the guy looked, he was he was pretty intelligent and he talked to me about the process of working out and he said it's the resistance that makes you stronger because every time you put strain on your muscles you put micro tears in those muscles and it's the proteins that come in and rebuild those micro tears that make that muscle thicker and stronger and if you continue to do that over and over and over again that's this principle of supercompensation when an athlete is pushed beyond the body's normal threshold of pain and exhaustion, then the body overcompensates. And the more a muscle is broken down, the more it builds back up. It's biological. And the same is true of our bones. There are 206 bones in the human body, and they are constantly going through this process called remodeling. Okay, so a little bit of science lesson here. They're broken down by these chemicals called osteoclasts, and they're built back up by chemicals called osteoblasts. And what's interesting is that the process of remodeling is intensified whenever a bone gets, bro uh, bone gets broken. Extra osteoblasts help rebuild that bone. And so while there, yes, there's this period right after the bone is broken, and it, whenever it's weak and the, the bone is vulnerable to re-injury, 
But then the body overcompensates so that bone actually becomes stronger than it was before the break. That's why very rarely does a bone break in the same place. Because the bone is thicker and stronger due to the first break and it's healing. So here's the point. Sometimes God breaks us where we need to be broken. He fractures our, our pride, our lust, our anger, our negativity, whatever your thing is, put it in there. He fractures that, but he, he doesn't do it as punishment. He doesn't do it as judgment. He doesn't do it because he wants to say, oh, that's, you know, that's awful. You need to suffer. No. He does it to remodel us in his image. And once we heal, then we wind up stronger than what we were to begin with. Now, I, I wish I could tell y'all that you can get a body like this just sitting in the recliner watching football. I wish I could tell you that. Actually, you can get a body just like this sitting in your recliner watching football. We would like that. I would love it. Because that would mean that I could get in shape, Steve, without a workout. We would love to be smart without the homework. We want to be wealthy, Dave, without the business plan, without the budget, Steve. We want spiritual maturity without spiritual discipline. Well, guess what? None of that works. There's an old saying, and you guys have prob probably heard it. I think I've even said it here tonight. No pain. Yeah. But I think a lot of us, what we try to do is we try to operate by a different life philosophy. No pain, no pain. But what we discover, Dave, is that the, past, the path of least resistance is the path of least fruitfulness. Mm. The people that God uses the most are often the people that have experienced the most adversity. I think in all three counties, you know, we've been talking about Benaniah and, and, and his encounter that day with. Well, not just that day, but he, he took on the two Moabite warriors and then he faced the giant Egyptian and then he took on a 500 pound lion. You know, any of those experiences could have ended Benaniah's military career. They, they were make or break moments for him. Without those adverse conditions, Benaiah would have disappeared, though, from the, from the pages of Scripture. If he, if he wouldn't have had to face the Moabites, if he never faced the Egyptian, if he never faced the 500-pound lion, then what would there be to write about? Adversity turned into opportunity for Benaiah to prove himself as this valiant warrior. So let's run that out. No adversity means no opportunity. God used adversity to remodel Benaiah. Each trial remodeled Benaiah as one of David's mighty men. First, he was captain of the bodyguard. Then he was the army commander. And eventually, he was the commander in chief of Israel's army. His circumstances prepared him for future opportunities. 
Folks, God's in the remodeling business. That's what he's doing with you in your life and all of that stuff that's going on that you don't like. He's remodeling. He cares more about your long-term potential than he does your short-term comfort. And if you'll let him, then he'll turn the past adversities you've had into opportunities. Adversity, guys, it's going, it's going to find you. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to walk out your door in the morning and say, man, I'm going to see what kind of adversity I can get in today. Don't do that. It's going to find you. But when it does, if you'll have the courage to chase that lion into the pit, you may just discover your destiny in the middle of that. I'm going to shut it down um, and, and we're going to pray here in just a second. But um, There's this famous speech from a film. It's an old, old movie called The Third Man. It was written by Orson Welles. And there's a line in, in that speech. It says, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgia, they had warfare terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. I rest my case. Adversity. Opportunity. Scripture and worship will help you to reframe it so that God can do his remodeling. Can, can we do something here tonight? Would y'all stand with me? I'm going to ask all of you to bow your head and close your eyes. Every head bowed and every eye closed. But I want you to take this part seriously, even though I'm being a goofball. If you're facing some adversity tonight and it, it's got you worn out, it's, it's just got you done spiritually, mentally, emotionally. If you're having a hard time seeing the opportunity in the adversity that you're going through, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to be the only person looking around right now. If you're facing that, would you raise your hand? Okay, you can put your hands down. Now, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do a Jesus juke on you. I'm not going to say, okay, now if you raised your hand, I want you to step out into the aisle. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, you, you, were, you were trusting and, and you raised your hand and I appreciate it. Folks, there were nine people that I counted that raised their hand. Nine people in this room tonight that said, Jason, I'm facing something right now and I'm just done. I'm tired. I'm worn out. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, I'm done. And I can't see it as the opportunity that you're talking about. And I want to pray for you. And I'm going to ask that if you didn't raise your hand tonight, then that means you're, you're in a pretty good place in your life right now. So would you, would you help me pray for those people? And then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we come to you right now just as your children.
and, and we just want to say daddy so that you can help us. Lord, there are things that we are dealing with here tonight that we don't understand what it is you're working in our lives. We, we know the scriptures there that says it's an opportunity and, and how we should look at it as, as, as an opportunity for joy and to grow. But God, sometimes that just that does not comfort us. So what I'm going to ask you to do tonight, Lord, in just a real quiet way. You, you saw the people that raised their hands. You know who they are. You know more about their situation than even they do. What I'm going to ask you to do is to just breathe a word of comfort and peace and strength into them. That says, my daughter, my son. I know exactly where you are. There is not a single thing that's happening in your life tonight that is a surprise to me. And I will carry you through. I will make you stronger than you were. All I ask is that you trust me to remodel you into what I see you can be. I'm not going to be satisfied to leave you in a place of comfort if it means you can't become everything I see you as being. So trust me. Lord, let that peace and, and that security and that rest enter in to their heart and spirit tonight. And I pray that before this week is over, for each one of the nine people that raised their hands in this room, God, for the one or two that that didn't raise their hand because they were worried about what I might do to them. Lord, for each one of those people, I pray before this week is over, that they would get a word from you that lets them know they're on your radar. It might be an email or a text from a friend. God, it might be a phone call from somebody out of the blue. It might be a scripture, Lord, that they've never read before, but whenever they read it, it just explodes in their spirit. It might be a message that they hear preached. God, it might be a picture that they see. That's just you talking to them to say, I've got you. Trust me. Lord, do it for them in Jesus' name. Amen.